Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday. Um... I want to do the parsha? I'm a little running a little behind this week. At Levi, as I mentioned, um, and today's <clears throat> we're going to take a look at the parsha. We got a double parsha this week. It's being sponsored by my good friend Adam Langer. I never since we were my first year teaching in Hopkins, I believe it was a million years ago. He was there, uh, and this is because yeah, I remember this when Adam had an accident years ago, long ago, uh, when the car and it hurt his broke his legs or something. It was really bad. I remember visiting the hospital. But thank God the good news, and it was this time of the year, it was around Rishkoshov, which is an unlucky time. And uh, thank God everything's good. You know, recovered, married, family, Baruch Hashem, happy ending. But it was rough. It was rough. So, to commemorate that, um, intellectual, Torway, he's sponsoring today's broadcast, and thank you. Now, um, podcast, I mean, uh, you have a double parsha, and you have Matas and Masai, <clears throat> and there's a few points I would call attention to, at least that come to me, which is all I can ever do. Uh, first of all, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, very interesting, because it says, I'm just going by heart here, In Matas, in the beginning, after the business about the Vows and then the Dharm. And then God tells Moshe, go launch a war of uh, revenge. Which they do. And it becomes very bloody as far as I'm concerned. This is the most non-PC part of the entire Bible. Because they kill everybody and then when they come back, they're little girls. And Moshe says, should have killed them too. And so that's a hard one uh, to defend to your uh, neighbors. Having said that, you see, well let me put it this way. It interestingly... Uh, problematizes the concept of revenge. Usually we understand revenge is a bad thing. But it sounds like on an individual level it's a bad thing, but on a Klai Yisrael level it's a good thing. Because God is telling them to do so. It's just interesting to me, and it's a fa- often quoted, that uh, God says, uh, Go and wage a war against the Midianites for Nikmas B'nai Yisrael, to take vengeance for B'nai Yisrael. But when Moses mobilizes the soldiers, I think he took a thousand per tribe, he says something like, uh, now, nikmas Hashem. So, God said, nikmas Yisrael. It's a midrash, you know. And Moses said, nikmas Hashem. So, you know, one way to look at it, I think it's a midrash rab, if I remember correctly, and they always quote it to him, no Melech or Kedusha Slavery, one of those places, Hasidic, that, you know, each one likes the other. Moshe wants to say the Iker thing was done against Hashem. And Hashem said, no, the Iker uh, thing was done against the Jews. <clears throat> but, in my current frame of mind, you can flip it. And you can basically say, God says, um, I want you to take revenge on the Midianites. Um, really? I thought revenge is a bad thing. 
And if you want to punish him, oh Lord, you give him a punishment. And nevertheless, Hashem said, And so Moshe is going to have to raise an army to go to war of vengeance. Isn't this something that will plant the Midah of vengeance of the Kamala and the Jews? They'll say, listen, God is in favor of vengeance, so leave me alone. But you mess with me, I nuke your house. Why not? God did it. You see what I'm saying? I would suggest, I mean, I don't know, but I would suggest that's why Moshe, when he communicates to the Jewish people, does not say what God told him to say. We find this X number of times in the Chumash. It's very interesting. You know, from a theological perspective, Maimonides would lay out as a dogma that Moshe was like a zombie and just say whatever God told him. Famous line. And it's very theologically neat and very Maimonidean. You know, I'm doing a, a, a mini-series, I was going to say. I'm doing a, a YouTube thing now, series of six lectures for three weeks, precisely on the Maimonidean controversies. So if you go and listen to that, I keep telling you, then, then uh, subscribe to the channel, because that helps my numbers. That's what they keep telling me. But if you go to, you know, Jewish History with Rabbi Katz or whatever it is, online videos, I'm doing right now the Maimonidean controversies. So, um... In that context, you know, uh, it says, the Rambam says, because he like, always likes a neat package, always a neat package. And he said, listen, the Torah is from Hashem, Moshe uh, said it, but God told him exactly what to say. In fact, if you read, he's like a zombie. God sort of looked, took control of him. And Moshe left the human state, hit the angelic state. I'm serious. Read, for example, the 13 principles, the... the um, Essay in the Pierce Mishnais, you know, uh, what's it called? Hakdam Laper Chalik. That's where he lays out the 13 principles of Maimonides. Or you can, if you look closely in Hilchus, uh, Yisodia Torah, a place like that, he talks about it also. It's always very neat. And therefore, anything you get out of motion is really Hashem talking. Okay, that's a theologically dogmatic statement. Got it. But Lamaisa, when you look in the Chumash, there's X number of times. Hashem says one thing and Moshe doesn't do, he says something different. Or he tweaks it. <clears throat> thing, for example, comes to mind, what you say every morning when you put the tefillin on, Yisrael, and Hashem says, tell him to use these words, and Moshe uses the different words. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you can always get out of it. I'm sure Mepharshim say, well, when he said this, he was really explicating what God was telling him. <laughs> but it is notable that Hashem says, Nekom Nikmas B'nei Yisrael, and Moshe doesn't say that, he says, Nekom Nikmas Hashem. I think, at least this year, I think, that Moshe is worried that um, if you say Nekom Nikmas B'nei Yisrael, you're going to introduce a kind of vengeful nationalism among the Jews. That, um, you know, Nikmas B'nei Yisrael is a good thing. Therefore, go out and kill everybody. And once you do that, it seeps down into society and everybody becomes very vengeful. And we know the Torah is not for that, for a whole bunch of reasons. Vengeance, you know, after uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, once it becomes tit for tat, and you do this, I can avenge, uh, it can open a can of worms. And that's how you start blood feuds and quarrels, and it never terminates. And in the long run, it's bad for the collective more than had the vengeance been bypassed. Okay? Even Shakespeare with the, um, you know, with the Shylock, by the end, is better had he not looking for vengeance. I know it's not true, I'm just saying, 
For example, Jewish people don't do too well with vengeance. Um, having said that, God said, Nakom Nikmasa Israel. Well, Moshe doesn't say, want to say it that way. So Moshe says, Nakom Nikmasa Hashem. That's a different story. You know, that's a one-time deal for Hashem, for uh, divine Kavod Shemayim. It's not for a Kavod Atzmi. But if you're saying Nikom Nikmasa Israel, then you're basically saying, you know, Kavod Atzmi. It's interesting, uh, I'm just thinking out loud here, which is what I always do. Uh, if you look in the Bible, I can think of a war of vengeance, which didn't work out so great. A, a war of vengeance. And that is what I like to call the War of the Grand Coalition in the time of King David. If you read, I argue that if you read Shmuel Bey's correctly and Divrayamim, the corresponding parts, You'll see that David Melech became a king. Uh, he was uh, 30 years old. He got involved with a couple of wars at the beginning of his reign. The Philistines attacked him right away. He wanted to take out uh, Jerusalem to capture it as the capital city. Uh, he had vengeance because they killed his parents. On Edom, apparently. I mean Moab, I'm sorry. That's a suggestion. He, he killed Moab, a lot of them. But then it was over. I want to repeat what I just said before is avenging for his parents. That's a Barbanel suggestion. We don't know. We don't know. It's important to my point. Uh, so here you are, 30, 31 years old, 32 years old. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. King David was 37 when he became uh, king of the United Tribes because uh, for seven years after the death of Saul, he was the king of the tribe of Judah. And the other guy, Ishbosheth, was in charge of the other tribes. They had two kings. But skipping over all those details that will carry us too far, uh, from the age of 37, so let's say 38, 39, 40, whatever, shine, he's done. And as far as David was concerned, he wouldn't have a peaceful reign because he had projects he wanted to do. And for a while it worked until it didn't. And um, the specifics of didn't work was that the king next door in Ammon died and King David sent ambassadors. The king claimed... King of Ammon claimed that they're spies. He really dissed them. He shaved them, their their bodies and things. He publicly humiliated them. So basically, he spit in the face of King David. Now, um, at that point, David sends a, a war of vengeance, okay, to avenge the insult. And he sends it under Yoav and Avshai, the two vicious brother, Job and Avshai. They almost got wiped out. It's a long story. I mean, they didn't. And they fought their way out of it because Yoav was like a uh, an extremely uh, effective commander. I guess he's the greatest general in our history. I guess. At least the way he's described. Um, but uh, it didn't work out well. And uh, it just without going through the details, it unraveled and became a massive war in which plenty of Jews were killed. If you know how to read the Tehillim, especially Psalm number 79 and number 61. It was pretty um, vicious. So, you know, a war's event is not necessarily the greatest idea. Uh, on the other hand, everybody wants it. Uh, to have vengeance seep down, the comma is a, a meter. And so, you insulted me in Shul, I plan to get you back. Uh, uh oh. I grew up in some shows like that. All you had was the Hatfields and the McCoys. Everybody's, you know. This faction versus that faction. 
That is very typical of Jewish history. One person insulted the other, then two teams formed, Team A, Team B, usually the business associates of A versus the business associates of B, and they had a machlikas and mechoma in the Jewish community. It's very easy. Now, um, and it could be something as silly as taking an Ali or whatever, you know, something really dumb. That's who we are. Uh, the Musser books, in a place like that, always warn you against uh, the dangers of vengeance. My favorite is the uh, Misilzia Sharm, who I remember in a chapter uh, says, and he was Italian too, that's the headquarters of revenge, the Misilzia Sharm. He says, I know revenge is sweet, you have to give it up nevertheless. This is in some chapter where he says, Gam hasinavah nekima, taking revenge. It's very hard to wiggle out of that once it hits a human heart. Because it is a fact. People feel their uh, insult keenly. If you insult me, you know, and you're somebody I care for, it hurts. And to get vengeance is sweeter than honey. He's, he's telling the truth. How many times were you dissed by somebody or something like that? And they, you fantasize. You know, that's what Jews do, usually. They fantasize, right? Oh, this will happen to a person, that will happen to a person. It's a sweet, you see? Ki That's the only menuch you have. He did something bad to you, the only thing you get back is mentioned. See, really, you're not getting anything back. It's not like the guy messed you over, so therefore you get your money back. It's that he messed you over, you lost your money, you'll never get the money back, but at least his car crashed, you know. <laughs> so you didn't get anything back. But he menuchos levado. So if a person can find within himself, the Misil Shasham says, the internal moral fortitude to withstand the blandishments of the Yitzhahara, which is beteva, as he says, and you're able to be mavra midosov, Below Yisna Misha Sina, and you don't hate the other guy, below you come in, and you don't take vengeance when the opportunity strikes, if you refrain from doing that, below Yitro, you don't even hold a grudge. El Hakil Lohoya, right? And you just move past it like it didn't happen. Chazak Bamitsu. You are one tough individual. You are a solid hombre. And then he goes on to say, right? Somebody did that is almost superhuman. It can be done, but somebody like that is most unusual. It's only easy for Malche Asharis. Shame Benim Hamidis Alalu. Right? Not for human beings made of flesh and blood and dust. Right? So basically, he's saying like this If there's a mitzvah which is anti normal, it goes against everything normal. It's the prohibition of revenge. Look what he's saying. Basically, Mesil Sharm said like this, I heard of art and I would do it myself. But what a bummer. God said you can't do it. So, <laughs> I can't do it. And it goes on and on and on. So I, I love that because he's saying from a human emotional point of view, it's almost inhuman to say the guy can screw you over, can insult you, can insult your children and your family, or hurt your children and your family, or this and the other, and you simply move past it. 
It's hard. It's hard um, to have within you the ability. And he goes even farther. He says, oh, you'll still like the guy and all the rest of it. I don't believe that's even possible. But, I mean, let's put it this way in a normal case. If it's somebody beneath you, that's a different story. But other than that, you have to be like a Moshe Feinstein, somebody like that, to do this. And that's what he's saying. He's saying it's only Kalam al Only angels don't have a temptation to do this. So it's just very interesting in this partial, in the beginning, the switcheroo and the names from Nikmas Hashem to Nikmas Yisrael and vice versa. I would think, in light of what I just said, reflects the fact that Moshe is like worried. Uh, if you're going to turn the Jewish people into revenge freaks, they will take revenge on one each other and they'll, and they'll um, self-destruct. And we have that gene because what happened with the Pelagish Begiva? You know, one group raped a girl and killed her. That is true. No question about it. They ended up killing the tribe. Wait a minute. Once they went berserk with the bloodlust, they wiped out the whole tribe. I think everybody knows the story. There was like a few hundred left. You know, only when they got it out of the system and killed everybody. The Pusik says that they ran from farm to farm and killed men, women, and children. That's a Jew on Jew. When we get involved with the comma, it's a dangerous business. That's why it says, Lo Sikam, Lo Zitra, you know, Lo Sikam, Lo Sikam, Lo Sikam, Lo Sikam, Lo Sikam, Lo Sikam, That's a toughie. So, maybe on a national level, the Komnik Mas Hashem, national level is not the right word, I said the wrong way, maybe on a divine level, if you're taking the comma for something that was done to insult God, maybe. Right? Maybe. But anything insult man, that's a different story. And uh, and therefore, you're left with a funny message. On the one hand, lo sikam below sitar. On the other hand, nikom nikmas benetral made somebody janim. Don't let him get away with it. Take vengeance on it. Do you understand that Jews were not told to dispossess the Midianites to take over their land or anything like that? That's their land. Okay? It's just interesting. But they are told smack them bad on the face. And Moshe goes in, they kill a lot of Midianites. And the idea is, you mess with me, I mess with you. It's like Ben-Gurion's retaliation raids in the 1950s. There's only one language these people understand, etc., etc. But the Pussy goes in and tells you all about it. And as I think you know, there are many halachic consequences of this. The kashing of the dishes and all kind of other stuff. Uh, it's just a weird aspect of the Parsha. I'm thinking it's because I pull it out of my shelf, I have in front of me a book that one of my students went to, I won't say his name, went to Israel in 1995, I think it was. Uh, and when he came back, he got me the book as a present. It's called Bar HaGeber. Hear what I said? Bar HaGeber. It was a book of tribute of 500 pages to Baruch Goldstein, the guy that shot all the Arabs in the mosque in Hebron in 1985, I think. Not 1995. And uh, all hell broke loose, my goodness. And he walked into the mosque and he stood behind everybody and started shooting. Now, until they took him down. Now, um, ordinarily you say he's a villain. He did something wrong. After all, you go behind and shoot him. They came up with a story that, that they were about, that he saved the Jewish community. They were about to commit a pogrom. I don't know if that's true or it's not true. I just don't know. It's a little too convenient. You understand? It's a little too convenient. Stop. The guy was crazy. Uh, but... This book of 500 pages um, is uh, pro Bar Goldstein. And I'm a coin, I don't go there, but I know today in Hebron, 
make them a nice grave and all the rest of it. And half the book is devoted, this is the reason I'm mentioning this to you, half the book is about uh, the, the, pro, the, the, the proposition that uh, Nekama is a Jewish thing. Right? Not all the time. They don't deny that. But the, the kind of Nekama we're talking about with Baruch Goldstein, that sort of thing with the Arabs, that's a good thing. It's a big mitzvah. I never had the patience to read it all because it's over 500 pages. But basically, they're pushing the idea that comes is Kavaldic. You see? Um, that's different than saying I'm using the comma as a deterrent. You know, you kill my, people on my side, I go kill people on your side. Uh, it's not exactly revenge, but it's like a deterrent. If I smash you and make the price too high, then you won't do it again. This has been Israel's uh, policy since 1948. Sometimes it works and sometimes it does not work. You understand? There are good arguments to be can be made that the retaliation policy of Israel, starting from 48 and 49, was a good idea, and there are strong arguments that can be made that was a bad idea. I won't go into it now. <clears throat> That's something for academic context. But it's just interesting that you have this, you know, uh, emphasis on the thing to come up. Uh, at least to me, it's interesting. Um, another thing you have in the parsha, and just pay attention uh, when you when you see it. That's my point. Is this business in Masse of the forty-two journeys? What's that? You know, why is it mentioned? How's it go? Vayachanu be this, vayisumi this, vayachanu be that, vayisumi alma, vayachanu dibol simon, whatever it says. And as we all know, they they list all the uh, forty-two times. And Rashi, of course, tries it, it homiletically, right? Uh, Rashi says, um, you know, it wasn't really that bad, to show you it wasn't that bad, that they uh, weren't uh, 42 years wandering. Uh, it was much smaller than that. That's the first part of Rashi. Or the second one is, uh, where is it here? The king took his sick son, his son who was sick, to a doctor, and... Uh, when they concluded and went back, they said, oh, here we stopped and here we stayed. In other words, to know the, the difficulties we got to get to Israel. That strikes me very interesting because to my mind, the 42 journeys from Egypt to the Promised Land, um, kind of like a foreshadowing of Jewish history because, first of all, we're in Gaulus now, I mentioned Lady Cleus this morning. Um, if you want to have some fun or be thoughtful, have we, as Jewish people, been in 42 Gauluses yet? I'll just start you off. We've been in uh, Italy and in Spain and Portugal and France and we've been in uh, Germany and Eastern Europe and so on and so forth. Yemen, you know what I mean. We start counting up. It, it's, it's, it's like a foreshadowing of Gaulus. Before the Jews could get to Israel, they had spent time in Gauls. Uh, and difficult Gauls. Now you say like this, what are difficult Gauls? Everything was good. You know, they had the Mon, they had all the rest of it. No way, Jose. You see how Moshe describes it. And he says, you know, it's a, it's a land of... Um, actually, it's in the Haftorah today. You know that? Uh, it's in the Haftorah. It's very funny how these things work. At least in my mind, it's funny. Sometimes... They'll build up how one like Sukkot, you know, by Sukkot of Shabti, it's been Israel, and everything was la di da. 
And then at other times, they'll uh, talk about how terrible it was. Lech techachar b'mid barberitz lo zruah. And uh, in the second chapter of Jeremiah, it says, you went through a terrible uh, land. Uh, here it is. Hakoni Nenev. It says, uh, one second. You know, it's one big blessing of the Jewish people, obviously. Prophet Jeremiah. And he says, I took you to a terrible uh, 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 journey. Um, where was it? And, and, and a dry land. And, uh, you know, you were suffering. And so on and so forth. Uh, I'm sorry, I, can, I shouldn't hold it over here. You'll take a look at the after or maybe tomorrow. Ah, here it is. In the second, uh, the third verse. Took me through a desolate land, nobody's ever been there, a place of of death, of Shimamon, a wasteland, of starvation. The Midbar that they spent 42 journeys was not a pleasant place. Now, that's what it sounds like from the prophet. Uh, Jeremiah, right? Um, now, there are indeed, as far as I understand it, you know, two schools of thought on how you approach this subject. Um, in Chazal, in the Chumash also, to put it in simple terms, sometimes it says, oh, the man tasted like whatever you want and everybody loved it. The other side says, no, the man tastes like tofu, and said, so we can't take this anymore. Now, you know, uh, sometimes it says the, the clouds surrounded the Jews. They had no trouble with the sharav, with the heat, and with the uh, sunlight. And uh, the clouds killed the scorpions and, you know, turned the whole place into a penthouse. In other places, it says, oh, you walked through a wasteland full of snakes and scorpions, and it was just terrible. It's just like two alternative uh, narratives. They find uh, strong throughout the entire Bible, as far as I can see. Um, and that itself is interesting. So, when we talk about the 42 journeys, it seems to me that they were tough. You understand? And they were tough. And um, that's why it says on the way back, they say, here we stopped and here we uh, stayed. It's a little bit, it's not the same thing, but it's a little bit like some people are Civil War nuts, for example. And they'll go to Middle Wasteland to see Chickamauga or some of these places, you know, Perryville, Murfreesboro, to, to you know, to, to, to visit the exact sites, even though they're not great places to go and visit. Now, um, what's the shot with these 42 journeys? As I said before, symbolically to me, I see them as a foreshadowing of the gullus that's coming in the future. We'll talk about it a little bit in a minute. But I would recommend to everybody... Get the art scroll with the Nakuda, you know me, with the Nakudos, the Bamidbar. You know what I mean? The, you know, the Mikra Skadolas, the five-volume set. Get the one for this is part of the Bamidbar. Not only do they have the Nakudos, but they also have good uh, pictures in the back. Uh, maps and things like that. They really do. And one of them, which is really cool, right, is on page 978. It's a map of the Membes Hamasa, oh, excuse me, the 42 Journeys. I don't know exactly, but it's as close as you'll get. 
And I'm looking at it, page 978. So if you want to follow along with me, uh, go pull out your Art Scroll, Manukod by Midbar, and you'll see what I'm talking about on page 978. I feel like Roosevelt, you know, during the war, he gave us, it was a different America. He said, I'm going to talk about the Pacific. Everybody in America, I'm going to speak tomorrow night, Roosevelt said. Everybody get an atlas. And millions of people got atlases, you know. So I'm just saying get an Art Scroll by Midbar, and you'll see that the 42 journeys take you from Ramses, which is basically where the Suez Canal is today, uh, down to Sukkos, which is, again, somewhere in the area of the Suez Canal. Obviously, there was no canal in those days. And then you go, this is interesting, because he's counting the 42 uh, journeys, and, you know, Atom and Mara and Elim and, and this and that and the other. It's all in this week's parashas. So you're, 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 you're walking along the coastline of the Sinai Peninsula. I think everybody is familiar with the Sinai Peninsula. I can't believe that you're not. And, you know, it, it, it juts out. So it's like a western side and the eastern side. The western side to the left faces Egypt. The eastern side faces, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia. <laughs> the Jews don't, contrary to popular belief, the Jews do not wander across the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, looking at it as, as a kind of an upside-down A, you get it? You know, imagine it as an upside-down, something like a V-shape or something like that, right? It's like a triangle. So they hugged the coastline. It's very interesting. That's why I really like this map. They hugged the coastline. And so they, the first whole bunch of journeys is um, along the Gulf of Suez, as we call it today, which means towards the part facing Egypt. And wherever Claudius Road goes, they're mamish right near the water. That is why I've said many times, you want to know where to get all the materials for um, the Mishkan and these unusual materials. They're near the water. People could land and sell them stuff, get a lot of money. And only when you get down to Olush do they um, plunge into the interior of the Sinai Peninsula on their way to Mount Sinai. And then, of course, as we know, they eventually reached Mount Sinai. So according to this, Harsine, and obviously nobody knows exactly where it is. But according to this, Harsine would be located in the lower part of um, the Sinai Desert, the Sinai Peninsula. I would say not too far away, not too far north of Sharm el-Sheikh. Not close, but you know, in that general gegant. Okay, fine. Now, then what happens then eventually they moved north, and uh, I talked about this a little while ago. I didn't follow the art scroll the picture over here. I didn't see it. It's not exactly the way I understand it, but I'm going to go with it for now for today's purposes. You could do a lot worse than get a clear picture from this map. You know, you can do other maps also, but let's go with this one. And it would take you into the, into the Negev Desert. So you'd be traveling, as the Jewish people did, from Harsinai, uh, through the eastern part of the Sin Lower Sinai Peninsula, uh, heading in the, I'll use a general word that you'll understand, heading in the general area of Eilat, but going north of it, to Chasiros until they get to Kosh Barnea, and then, of course, they send the spies, and there's a screw-up with the spies. As I mentioned before, what happens then? Then Hashem's like this, Penu Lochem Derech Yamsuf. God's like this, you're not ready to go to Israel? So the heck with it, you're not going now. This is like the second year of, that they left in the second year of leaving Egypt. And so then all the places they go to are 
what we would call today Saudi Arabia. They go away from this from the Negev Desert. In other words, instead of proceeding north, and then you're really Mamish not too far away from uh, Beersheba area, but Edom interposes, the Edomites wouldn't let him in. And so then you go south, and you head, what he regards here as horror, horror, and all this sort of thing. We all know Etzion Gever is a lot. And, and, and then they go uh, eastward to what we call today Saudi Arabia and, and southern Jordan. And then they head northward, according to this, from Ovos, until they get to, uh, they bypass Moab, or in other words, they go to the right of Moab, and they end up in the land of Sichon and Og, what they call Alma and Divlasaima, and, um, and that's where the journey kind of concludes, because then they take over Sichon and Og in the war, and they, uh, you know, and then Moshe dies, <laughs> and that's what it is. Now, the point of the whole business is, is the Rube Goldberg. Everybody knows they should have gone straight into Israel. But lo nachem elohim derech ha'etzplishin, and ki karofu, ki amar elohim peniros, and melchom ebeshav mitzrayimah. They had a detour. A detour? It's not a detour, it's a crazy detour. Right? It's a crazy detour. It's, uh, you know, they didn't just go a little bit around. They mamash went, you know, I'm heading, I'm in Baltimore, I'm heading to California, but first I go to Mexico City, or, or worse, you know. It's crazy. I go to Florida, you know, wrong direction. Uh, they're telling you this no. Uh, this was what they had to do. Now, um, the Rambam very famously says, it's a big episode of his, philosophically speaking, here's something I'm dealing with in my um, in my videos, he said, uh, you know, in my YouTube lecture series, that uh, the Torah has what we would call a historical context. That doesn't mean it's purely historical because if you... It's not purely historical because then everything would be um, literally time-bound and would be useless today. This was the argument against Maimonides when he suggested a, a number of purely historical reasons for things. But nevertheless... You don't go to the other extreme and say nothing is historical. The Jews did leave at a certain time in a certain place. The Torah was given at one point in history and not the other. And the Torah was given to a certain generation where they wore a certain type of clothes and spoke a certain type of speech. You can't avoid that. And therefore, it's not anything negative to say that. And the Rambam asserts that, um, very famously, that... Um, Certain messages were shared in the Chumash and certain were not because of historical reasons where the people were holding. This is particularly true of the what they call Trias Amesim, because uh, he had something called the Geras Trias Amesim, without getting involved in this too, too much right now. Uh, it was a question does he believe in physical resurrection? And uh, one of the problems is it's not mentioned in Chumash, except by the most twisted reading. But I mean, you know, Pashtas. There's no mention of Chiyas Amesim in the Chumash. And um, the Ram was saying, you're right. Uh, and the reason is because the people weren't spiritually ready to hear such a sublime concept yet. And uh, therefore was saved till later. You don't believe me, says the Rambam? Look at what it says, the Masos. They should have gone straight into is from Israel, I'm sorry, from Egypt into Israel in two, three days. But below Nachem Elohim, and God didn't do that because he said they'll be scared. Why didn't Hashem make them this stronger? 
Why didn't Hashem nuke the enemy? He doesn't deal with that. He deals with people by Sheru Chong. And therefore, the Jews, when they left Egypt, were not in the psychologically courageous mood to fight the Philistines. They just weren't. And therefore, Hashem didn't make them do so. Did not make them do so. It was only later on when they were toughened that they were told to fight um, and conquer the land of Canaan, as we all know. So, the 42 trips, that should have been less without the Maraglim, but this long roundabout turned out to be necessary to get the people to where you want them to get. You see? If you would ask them to go straight, it wouldn't have worked. If you would ask them to go almost straight, it wouldn't work. Even when he took a, a U-turn and took him first to the bottom of the Sinai, to Harsinai, and then led him into Israel, it still was too premature. Because that's the Maraglim. What's the shot with the Maraglim? Hashem said, you should go now. Even then, they're still holding by what they were before. There's no real difference between the reaction of the spies and the people, where he said they were crying all night. That's Tishba, we all know. They cried all night. And the feeling of scared when they left Egypt and saw the Philistines and the dead bodies of the Jews left before them. It's still the same scared. So, I tried to take you straight from Baltimore to New York. I saw that that wasn't going to work. So I tried to do a detour through Philly, even though it added a few hours. But that didn't work either. And so instead I had to drive to Chicago, and then from Chicago to Montreal, and then from Montreal down to Boston, and then Boston, you know, to, I don't know, uh, Buffalo, and then from Buffalo, you know, down to New York or something like that, which is a Rube Goldberg situation, wherever it was, but it doesn't matter. If that's what's necessary, that's what he did. You understand? If that's necessary, that's what he did. Bashir Husham. And what that means is that when you have to pursue an objective, uh, you don't worry about the fact you have to detour and things like that. As long as you keep your eyes focused on the objective, that's the main thing in the end. Um, anybody's a parent knows this, right? Uh, anybody's in any kind of leadership situation, a lot of times people are, you know, aren't going to do what they're supposed to do right away. They won't take the derech hakitsara. They should, but it won't happen. You want your kid to go to this yeshiva, this college, this, that, and the other. You want him to become this. They're not, at this moment, they're not going to do it. I, they're young and dumb and they don't see what should be. You're older and wiser and you're giving them good advice. In economy, it's true, you are giving them good advice. And it's true, they're young and dumb and they don't see it. So what? Are you going to force them? You get a, you get a blowback. Right? They're just emotionally reacting in the, in the wrong way. And so if necessary, you have to be prepared to use 42 muscles to get to where you want to go. As long as you get there in the end. I think it's a powerful lesson. Uh... It's a derech, uh, what they call derech harucha kitsaro. Um, again, I shouldn't even think about this, but this is the week of 4th of July. I don't know why I'm fixated on this. That's what happened with Grant at Vicksburg. You know, the Vicksburg fell on 4th of July. If you know the Vicksburg campaign, he tried a hundred ways to get, and I, don't, I won't bore you with the details, but he mamash did like this. He tried a hundred ways to go straight to Vicksburg. It didn't work. He had to cross the Mississippi and go the other way. And he tried all kinds of other things. And one thing after another, after another, didn't work. So finally, 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 after, a, I don't know how many tries, he finally figured out the right way and eventually got to Vicksburg. But in the end, once he won and captured the city, 
all the mistakes in the past didn't mean anything. Because in the end he was Matzliach. So the same thing, if the Jewish people, after all the mistakes, after Golden Calf, and after the spies, and after Korach, and after all the Borching, and who knows, I don't know, the, 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 the Kanani Melch you know, whatever you want to name it, right? The Benosimov, all that stuff, which represents the 42 journeys. If at the end they finally got to Israel, uh, so then, okay, it's worth it. The only thing is, sometimes there's a price to pay. So somebody, I'll just make, I'm going to make something up. I'm not just making stuff out of thin air. Let's say parents say like this. You should go to medical school. You have to head for uh, math and science. You should go to medical school. The kid says, no, I want to be, I don't know, a beachcomber or something like that. And so they have to drain a cup. The kid is 15, 20, 25, 30, 30. Finally, at 40, you say, you know, I have to go to medical school. And by the time he's 48 or 50, he finally finished and did everything. So he's 50 years old, now he's a doctor. And now he is. In economy, you know, you, know, you can say, oh, you wasted 20 years, 30 years. Or you can say, listen, he finally got there. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten there. And this is what was necessary. And listen, you know, we'll have to make it as best you can build your career in the last, you know, 15, 20 years of your life. What, you know, a productive life worth 30 years, whatever it is. And better than the other way, which would be nothing, be a still beachcomber. You understand? So the Jewish people finally get to Israel. We did pay a price. There's no Moshe Rabbeinu. And that had long-term consequences. There's no question about that. Um... It means the Jewish people are unbelievably stubborn. They're bon shalom, you know, exasperated. At least that's what he always says. <laughs> but with all the exasperation, he's willing to do whatever it takes. And he's willing to lead him across this map over here and go in this very roundabout way in order at the end, at the end, at the end, at the end, the Jews should finally get to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, so I would, I see that sitting here as a kind of metaphor for so much of life. Um... You have to have the ideal, the goal. If you don't have a goal, then you have a real problem in life. It may be that you're not going to go to the goal straight up. There could be a lot of impediments in the way. So you go around, you do 42 muscles. And sometimes it involves going through a desert and through difficult times. And sometimes it goes through dry spell, as they say, and scorpions along the way, and all kind of other junk. And it's not pleasant. It would have been better had you behaved the right Hanhaga and gone three days in Eretz Yisrael. But not everybody's life is like that. And you shouldn't allow the fact that your life is not turning out perfect to prevent you from being willing to undertake the 42 months if that's what it takes to finally get to the goal. Anyway, that's what struck me as I was looking at this double parsha. And I think in the three weeks, you know, it, it's a really a striking message. Um... Now with that, I'll, I'll leave you to, to uh, ponder that. And once again, we thank Adam Langer and his family for sponsoring, and I wish you all good jobs. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.